great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And welcome back to another episode of the Every Outfit Podcast. Before we started recording, because Chelsea and I have not seen each other for a week, we missed talking about the fact that there was an earthquake in Los Angeles. And every time that this happens, as an Angelino, you're like, oh shit, that wasn't the big one, but the next one could be. <laughs> the big one's coming. <laughs> How do we adequately prep? And you were talking about you and Tat went down a rabbit hole of all of this like earthquake prep shit. <laughs> and I revealed to you that pre-pandemic, my dad went like full survivalist and I have all of this prepper <laughs> shit. How this started was you're like, there's water that is in little packets. And I said, I know. And I <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like, just get bottles of water. Like, even if you're on foot or something, like, surely you just want a bottle of water, right? I don't even know what I'm looking at. Lauren has like this bucket basically full of like all of these various meals we got chicken teriyaki with rice we got lasagna with meat sauce noodles and chicken you have a whole house full of food like we could be eating like tinned fish if there was an earthquake yeah like if we're trapped in our house like you're not eating this 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 bucket of food that you put hot <laughs> water on is so large that there's a warning on the back to not let toddlers around it empty because <laughs> toddlers could fall in also I pulled it out because I was like oh I think it's about to expire because I've definitely had this for four years and it's like Best Buy <laughs> March 2048 well the big one could be coming at any point in the next what is it 50 years or something yeah, I think the only applicable thing to have is there's this four in one flashlight which is more than anything it's a radio but who's going to listen to the radio it's one or three LEDs a panic alarm which what's that for you but also have your car like wouldn't we just listen to the radio in our cars if it was some situation or perhaps like a cyber attack where like none of our cell phones were well the most important thing about it other than being a flashlight you know a light source first and foremost is that you can just solar charge your cell phone by turning this little contraption <laughs> I love that you pulled out your first aid kit as if you don't have like a full bathroom with like all of that shit in it already. But what we actually need is like we need to get like gallons of water. Right. Or like water bottles. And we need like fucking dog food. We need like canned dog food. Puppers need to survive. Like I don't think like my dog's staying on his raw food diet in the apocalypse. <laughs> I need to get some puppy chow. There was recently this discussion because the show The Last of Us is very big. And so on TikTok, I saw this discussion about how people that wear contact lenses are going to be the first to go like once they run out of their contact lenses in the apocalypse <laughs> they're fucked yeah it's shit like that and that's a trope in horror films and i remember this in the mummy where the guy with glasses gets eaten by the mummy because of course he's running and he falls and his glasses break and then he can't see Right. So you got to get murdered. Also, we need to get like vape pens or something. You know what I mean? Like you can't go to med men during the apocalypse. I want yours and Tad's survivalist guides. Tad's would be like a Balenciaga like eye mask or something. Yeah, it's a bucket of food from Jade's. <laughs> you know that that's coming. Erewhon. That's it. We need to do like a canned Erewhon shop. So we still have like organic vegetables. Because that's how Alex Jones makes a lot of money as well. I'm not going to say how I know this. I mean, I will. Chell and I once went to his merch website and we were like, not for nothing, this shit's kind of brilliant. <laughs> oh yeah, true. We were like, wow, <laughs> this is better than I thought it would be. I kind of want this globalist t-shirt. Well, to be fair, like the InfoWars logo is beautiful. But like him and Pat Roberts, that's the big thing they shill is like, you got to buy... I'm pointing again to the bucket of food. <laughs> Not that I got this from Alex Jones. It's from, uh, since 1968, mountain house meals have been enjoyed on trail shores, mountains, and in homes around the world. Oh my God, I got trail food? It's actually like you have a full <laughs> pantry. Like what you actually need is a backpack. Like in the situation that you can't leave your house, like the fires are coming this way or whatever it is, you have to flee. Again, you'd be in your car, so I don't, it, none of it makes sense. Make it make sense. It's a capitalist society and how we process fear is just buying shit that we don't need. 
Also, Lauren, here's a survival tip. If let's say everyone's trying to flee Los Angeles, you can't go the fastest route, like how you would normally go if you were leaving. You have to think of what's the longest route that no one that would takes take. the most amount of time. Exactly. I'm dying. Okay. <laughs> I don't need to survive. <laughs> yeah. If it's about survival of the fittest in that situation. And I am by no means the fittest mentally, physically, <laughs> in any sense, really. My parents' house is basically smack dab in between where you live and where I live. And frankly, I think we go there, drink all my dad's 818 reserve and just peace out. That sounds great. Okay, should we talk about <laughs> something that maybe anyone listening cares about for a hot minute? I was going to say, speaking of a modern day survivalist, Julia Fox's apartment <laughs> tour. Fuck those architectural digest tours, because this is actually the only thing I care about now. Did you see David Harbour's and Lily Allen's insane house tour? I did. The British jumped out. Like, wow. I didn't even know like you could have a house like that in Brooklyn. Well, yeah, if you evidently get Billy Cotton and are cyberbullied into <laughs> gaslit into having tiny lamps in your kitchen and such. And yeah. carpet in the bathroom. Look, I respect the fact that she went extreme and that it's not trendy, I guess, in the way that a lot of celebrities' houses kind of look the same now. She, like, again, went full British respect like obviously not my aesthetic way too ornate but no. to each their own and we love a supportive husband that just goes with anything that his wife and her gay designer wants yeah something tells me this is not like david harbour's personal aesthetic as he acknowledges in the beginning of the house tour he was like you already went to my apartment and it's completely different now oh right i did watch that i didn't watch the new video though i've just seen the photos oh the photos are are beautiful there are kind of two kinds of architectural digest couples house tours where um it's either couples on the verge of divorce or our interior designer definitely convinced us that this was cool, so we're just going with it. Right. And theirs is kind of the latter. And it's impeccably designed, but it does feel like a very cool store or something. And I do think they're going to get tired of it in three years. But who cares? They're rich. They can redecorate it completely. Yeah, but it is classic in a certain sense. Like, it's very maximalist, obviously. Yeah. But back to Julia. <laughs> I think a lot of people were surprised that this is Julia Fox's apartment, but as someone that's lived in New York, like if you see a really fabulous it girl that's like head to toe designer clothes, this is what her apartment looks like. For sure. And also in somewhere else, I saw that this is an apartment she's had since before she had a kid, before Uncut Gems. And she obviously has a great rate, and that's why she remains there. Also, when did she have time to, like, move? That's she true. has a baby. Like, she doesn't have a nanny, which I find to be incredible. And we know this because she has Valentino's daycare schedule on a little board in the hallway. She's such a real one for that. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware of this phrase that's going around TikTok that's, like, the new trend, which is de-influencing which, as I understand it, is a rejection of the consumerism of influencing culture, as well as the hyper-curated nature that lifestyle influencing has become. And this is a perfect example of de-influencing, being like, no, nah, this is what my house looks like. I would like to be more like that on the internet. Like, that's a noble pursuit. That is true, but your house is beautifully curated as is. Not always. Like, sometimes I'm a monster. Sometimes it's like empty Diet Coke cans and little Baby Bell wax balls just like littered around the house, you know? It's like disgusting. Did you watch the video I sent you of a woman who thought she, she woke up bleeding, that she had cut herself in her sleep, and she realized that she had just slept on a Baby Bell <laughs> wax cover and it had melted into her skin? <laughs> Yes, that was great. I also think that the Julia Fox apartment tour gets at the heart of New York apartments, which are most fucking apartments are long and make no sense. Yeah. There's so much unusable space in New York apartments. I say this as someone who slept in their hallway of their railroad apartments. Because railroad apartments are such a thing, but also you have situations where railroad apartments have been divided up into two different apartments. Right. Or it's like the landlord tries to make an extra room in like a one bedroom apartment so they can sell it as a two bedroom apartment. So there's some like diagonal wall or some shit. 
whether it be film or, or architectural digest, house tours, it leads you to believe that most New York apartments, if you have money, are square or rectangle and have lots of windows. And the reality is you get the one room with the window, then it's darkness, and like maybe there's a back room with a window and you get to look at the back of the building. Yeah, New York apartments, it's, it's rough. It's rough. People don't realize, but that's like actually what it's like to live in New York. It's like you don't have the Carrie Bradshaw apartment necessarily. You have the Julia Fox apartment. Oh, yeah. The real Carrie Bradshaw would have an apartment that looks like this. Well, yeah, because Candace actually did. I remember reading some interview with her once where she basically said like, yeah, like I didn't have furniture for a really long time. Like I slept on a mattress on the floor. Like I had a designer wardrobe because I spent all my money on clothes. That's the reality of Again, being a New York it girl. I was going to say, but like Carrie Bradshaw, Julia Fox has, she doesn't exactly have shoes in her oven, but she does have shoe boxes in her kitchen, which she adds that is very common in New York. One thing I didn't see, though, that I expected to see, which I think is present in almost every New York it girl's apartment, which is like a diptyque candle that they've had for so long and burned for so long that it's like black. The glass is like black, half empty diptyque candles like sitting around everywhere. I thought the realest part of it was when she just showed the vintage Barbie doll photo print that she got on West 4th Street (laughs) that reminded her of her and her friend. And then directly below it, she goes, this is the plant station where nothing grows. Well, and she had another one of those Barbie like prints in Valentino's room. I like how I'm talking about her (laughs) child as if. We know him. I think it's great. We also should note that Julia Fox is incredibly funny. I really would like to see her in a comedic role. I'd really love to see her write a semi-autobiographical film about her own life also, because I do think she could be like the Goldie Hawn of our generation. Like no one that hot has business being that funny. This is true. Hot people usually don't have good slash funny personalities. She did say a year ago, I think at an Oscar party, that was the viral I don't like to speak of things before they hatch or whatever that line was, but she was writing a book or at least attempting to. Would read. Someone did comment, aren't you worth like $30 million on this apartment tour video? To which she responded to and she was like, oh, I'm far from it. Which does indicate she's a millionaire, but it gets into a thing that you and I have talked about and we ourselves have experienced that having a large social audience doesn't equate dollar signs. Or just being a famous person. Like that's such a common misconception with actors too. Right. But also the internet inflates everyone's wealth. Like once I found that I was on one of those, like how much is so-and-so worth? And I'm apparently a millionaire. (laughs) One of the times we were semi-canceled for like 72 hours. I remember someone sent us a DM and was like, you really need to have a social media, what was it? It was like someone that we should have had a full-time person going through our DMs. It's like, babe, this is not as lucrative as you think it is. At the time, we could barely pay ourselves. It was like, what? Yeah, it's like, sorry, we don't have like HR. (laughs) But that's the thing on social media. Everyone is so used to like coming to a comments thread with a customer service concern right or dming a company with a customer service concern and it's like not all businesses can handle that and not all things with large social followings like ourselves warrant a business yeah exactly i i see there's something called chelsea's celesbian news corner (laughs) yeah i have some celesbian news i don't know which to start with though Well, before we begin, did you see on Ellen's Instagram, her and Portia renewed their vows? Oh, really? And Kris Jenner officiated it. No. Yes. (laughs) Wait, what were they wearing? Do we have pics? Uh, Yeah. Because they wore Zach Posen when they got married, and Ellen wore a very questionable... Grab your phone. It's on Ellen's Instagram. Portia rewore the Zach Posen dress with the... It was like a linen halter vest and pinkish tool. Wait, Ellen's just wearing like a normal outfit. Yes. I think everyone <laughs> gathered under the guise that it was Portia's birthday. And right. Chris Jenner remarks in their latest Montecito home. Chris has to have a secret Montecito home, right? How will we not know about it though? But she's there always. Or she's just at the Rosewood Miramar. Or she's just like staying at Ellen and Portia's like 
freestanding guest house on their Montecito property. They also have four homes between Santa Barbara and Montecito, so. Wow. I mean, I do love to see that. I do love Ellen and Portia as a couple. Like, if they ever broke up, I would be very distressed. I mean, I'd be happy for Portia, but I'd be distressed. (laughs) Right. It would be like if Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson broke up for the straights. It would be like when Danny DeVito and... Rhea Perlman broke up and that was just like the most upsetting but they're back together oh are they they're not divorced to fish okay that's amazing that's the best news I've heard all day also speaking of which Tat had to pick something up at the front desk of the Beverly Hills Hotel (laughs) and I was just waiting in the car at the valet and she comes back and she's like oh my god you will never guess who I just saw Matilda's dad And then I look over and I see Danny DeVito like standing like alone in the rain, like waiting for his car or whatever. And I'm like, that is, I love how excited you got by that. Well, that's also highlighting the age difference between you and Tad, where she's like, it's Matilda's dad. Did I tell you that on the plane ride back to Los Angeles, that Matthew Broderick was on my flight? Oh my God, yes. You texted me, but tell me everything. There was not anything to tell. Uh, He was very nondescript. He just had a carry-on and a backpack and his Mets hat. Uh, And my dad was like, did you go up to him? And I was like, and say what? What are you going to say? Like, please tell SJP that that like deranged bitch from Instagram says hi. Yeah, I was like... One, I'm pretty sure Sarah Jessica Parker doesn't know who I am. And that's a long discussion as well, if we ever ran into her on the street. Um, So just imagine having to explain that one person removed to Matthew (laughs) Broderick. Yeah, like what would he actually say to her when he got home, if anything? (laughs) I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker is not the biggest fan of social media. And Matthew Broderick isn't even on social media. So I wouldn't even know how to begin to explain like, hi, so I have this Instagram. <laughs> so funny. Um, okay, this has gotten really hetero, so considering funny. we're talking about celesbian news. So, oh, so my wife's met you. No, we've never met. We're just internet friends. <laughs> internet frenemies? I don't know. <laughs> not frenemies. Although I do think it's like, Again, we've had this frustration before because the actresses do follow our account and we are not in control of the comments section. And that sucks. Right. Anyway, so in other celesbian news, one of my favorite celesbian power couples, Cassandra Gray and Samantha Ronson, are engaged. That is amazing news. I just need to blow up my own spot because as the great ally that I am, I'm the one that lets you know, one, they were dating and two, they were engaged. (laughs) No, I absolutely love it. And I love them. And for people that aren't familiar, Samantha Ronson is, of course, a DJ, ex of Lindsay Lohan, sister of Mark Ronson, daughter of the iconic socialite and Dexter Jones, um, celesbian icon. And Cassandra Gray is the founder of Violet Gray, which is, a, I guess, the fanciest makeup store that exists. That's a good way to put it. In Los Angeles. She was also married to the mega producer, founder of the management company that represents us, Brillstein Gray, uh, Brad Gray, who passed away a few years ago, tragically. She's found love again. Yeah. It's beautiful, and I'm so happy for them. So congrats to the gal pals. The fashion of that wedding is going to be major. I feel like Cassandra should probably wear the row and that would probably be easy for her because Violet Gray is like literally next door to the store on Melrose. The physical proximity, yes. Oh, by the way, in some Los Angeles retail news, there is a Margiela store on Melrose now. Did it open up in the old Marc Jacobs? I don't know where it is. I haven't seen it. I haven't been in, but Tat just told me there is now one there. Very exciting. Because the location of the Beverly Hills store is a little random. It's so random. Like you have to like, it's a beautiful store, but like you have to make a point to pull over. It's on Little Santa Monica, which by the title indicates that it's off of the main Santa Monica, the weird nexus of Century City and Beverly Hills. Oh, also, I don't know if you saw the film You People by any chance, but I did. And I want you to know, Just One Eye is a prominently featured location. I can't even really get into it without literally spoiling the end, the ending of the movie, but like heavily featured. My parents watched it and said it was awful, but now you've given me a reason to watch this it's, movie. Well, I don't know. It's a movie. In that movie, Sam Jay and Jonah Hill have a best friends podcast 
And that is a podcast that I would listen to. Wow. I'm surprised they didn't do an episode just as branding for the film. While I was in New York, guys, as you can tell, this is going to be a really like a side podcast episode. But when I was in New York, I went to our favorite theater, Nighthawk, and I saw Brandon Cronenberg's, who's the son of David Cronenberg. I was about to say who? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nepo Baby. Yeah, Nepo Baby. Film Infinity Pool. It's the movie with Mia Goth and Alexander Skarsgård. Oh, cool. And I went in knowing nothing. Um, and I think I should leave it that way because it goes in directions I did not see coming. Is Mia Goth, like, fabulous? Yeah. And she's, at one point, she's on the hood of a car making Alexander Skarsgård walk, a defeated Alexander Skarsgård walk, and then she puts him on a leash. So what more do you want from a movie? Okay, that sounds cool. Um, again, way too heterosexual. In other Celesbian news, the third season of the L Word reboot, the L Word Generation Q, just aired. You haven't seen any of this season, have you? I have not, and I pitched to you because there are certain cultural obsessions we have that the other one isn't into, that potentially doing deep dive Patreon episodes with people who are not us because to me people who actually care about this shit yeah because also to make you watch seven seasons of buffy and me how many seasons of l word plus generation (sighs) q well the thing is i actually have tried to get some celesbians to come and talk about the l word generation q and everyone says no because no one wants to go on record about their actual thoughts on this show and i frankly like have been scared to talk about it because i don't want to come off as a huge bitch go ahead the original l word was two things it was a show about a very closely knit group of friends and the audience kind of like wants to be in the group of friends right right and it was soft core porn like it was literal pornography basically yeah. my dad watched every season of the l word <laughs> yeah your dad would love the l word and but would he love generation no he'd q. hate generation q he would hate generation q because generation q has neither of those things like the friend group doesn't feel like they would actually be friends. Which is a symptom of millennial slash Gen Z friend group shows. Yeah. In general. Yeah, it's really, really weird. But it's also like the weirdness of integrating like the new cast with the returning cast members from the original. And like there's no way any of them would ever be friends. So there's right. that. And of course, they don't want it to be too male gazy like the original to the point that like it's not a sexual show at all. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there's, like, none of that. It's, like, if you want to see, like, tight shots of people kissing, then, like, this is the show for you. But, like, it is not... It is, like, almost completely desexualized, I think. Which is weird. I feel like a trope in lesbian media is just, like, a really charged hand-holding scene or, like, a pinky yeah. grasping another <laughs> pinky. It's It's that level. But... It is very and just like that esque in the sense that I do really enjoy watching it. Like I would watch it every day if I could. Right. But I always end up screaming at the TV for some reason. And like and just like that, it's addressing the fact that the original L word was problematic in a lot of ways in the way that like every TV show that wasn't made in the last five years is. So it's almost like overcorrecting for that. And there are ways to do it, and we've outlined how to do that within just like that, but they don't seem to do it the right way. Like, there is a way to acknowledge how slightly problematic previous iterations of the show we loved are, but they choose not to. Well, it does feel like the primary goal of this show is to not offend anyone. Like, the recently canceled Gossip Girl reboot where it's like, the teachers are Gossip Girl now. Could you imagine if uh, Jenny Schechter just walked out and was like, I faked my death. <laughs> that would be incredible. See, I've seen the show. I, I know what love, happened. I would love if Jenny came back or haunted someone or, yeah. or whatever. I think that would be great. See, that would actually be a funny version of what happened in And Just Like That. With big haunting Carrie potentially, right, right. like if, it, but if it was actually like a hateful ghost of Jenny Schechter, like that would be a nightmare. That would be like you'd have to like get an exorcist or whatever. What are those people called that get spirits out of your house? Are they exorcists? No. As we spoke about on the Megan Patreon episode, we don't watch those Conjuring films, so we don't know what they're called. <laughs> 
But that said, there are some good things about Generation Q. For example, Rosie O'Donnell is playing a butch woman who is in a butch on butch relationship, which that is something I've never seen on television before. So props for that. Secondly, G Flip and Chriselle attended Ben and Tina's wedding. Shut the fuck up. Ben and Tina got married again. They never got married. Oh, well, they got married finally. They finally got married. Anyway, they're back together is what I'm trying to say. It did delight me, but it also speaks to the fact that like, okay, so you think G Flip and Bet Porter would be <laughs> friends? <laughs> like in what fucking world? Also, another great guest at the wedding was Eileen Shaken, who created the L word. Nice. And then moved on to Empire, Handmaid's Tale, a bunch of other successful shows and a local lesbian icon. I don't know. You're making this show sound great. Well, at the end of the day, it still does have Jennifer Beals in it. Yeah. It has Kate Menig. It has Leisha Haley. And they are the great OGs. Although I still can't get over the fact that they wrote off Pam Greer with a single line and said she died of an opioid overdose. Oh, that's mean. It's so mean. I mean, I think I watched a good amount of The L Word as I'm about to pull out this storyline. The storyline that freaked me out the most, because I was a teenager watching it and didn't understand how duplicitous Christian organizations who are uh, pro-life can be, when Pam Greer's character goes to get an abortion, and it's like the fake abortion clinic. Yeah. Yeah, that shit actually exists. It's terrifying that that's not illegal. she slept with Tina and Bette's Manny? Well, he was her boyfriend, Angus. One of the more, like, vile, straight male characters on the L word. They were all pretty bad. They were all the most disgusting men ever, actually. I don't think there was one that was okay. The only one that was okay was Tony Goldwyn, but he was he was a had like a Rock Hudson storyline where actually he was a, a big gay guy. I love that that's what you remember. Yeah. That's so <laughs> random. Because that was Jenny Schechter's breakdown season. She had a Also when Wallace Shawn was on the L word for a minute. Do you remember <laughs> that? Yeah, he played like a he played like an investor in the film adaptation of Jenny Schechter's best-selling novel. We might have to do like a special Wallace Shawn's guest star roles in early odds <laughs> television series episode. Anyway, moving on, shall we talk about a shocking new lipstick that came out today? Oh my God. We've spoken about our love of Isamaya French's foray into the beauty world. She is in the midst of taking all of my money. Yeah, her her brow gel is the best in the game. It's irreplaceable. Yeah, and she is seemingly doing very thoughtful collections. So the first one was industrial. There was one called Wildstar, which I missed, but I want to get the the lipsticks. Yeah, and all of it has very, like, extravagant, varied packaging. But Which which has come to... (laughs) A peak with this latest collection called Lips, which is a $95 lipstick in a dick case. Not just a dick case. It has balls. Like the base of the lipstick, like what you would have to hold in your hand to put it on your lips is balls. And then the dick part is what like, you know, covers the lipstick. My instant reaction was like, no, when I saw it. (laughs) And it's, it's fucked because it's not even like I hate a phallic motif. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I enjoy, like, those J.W. Anderson keychains that are shaped like dicks. Or, like, I have that Richardson incense burner that's shaped like a dick. But there's something about the balls. Not to, like, body shame any men. It's just, like, there's something, like, wild about this lipstick. No, I think most straight women as well are just like, balls are weird. I just like can't imagine like whipping this out in public. I already ordered it. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Did you really? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, now it's a business expense. (laughs) We talked about it on the podcast. But I did think of of you because I know how much you love her products. And I was like, I don't think Chelsea can hold this (laughs) and put it on. Again, if it didn't have the balls, if it was just the dick, I would buy it too. There are many reasons that it is sad that Kim Cattrall and the character of Samantha Campion and just like that. But this is, I mean, (laughs) if there was ever a beauty product Samantha Jones would own, it is this. It's true. All right. On to Gucci's new creative director. Sure. 
there's really not that much to say about this. His name is Sabato De Sarno. Sabato De Sarno. <laughs> <laughs> was did you just say that as Jared Leto in yes. House of Gucci? Uh, yeah, no. Any stereotypical Italian voice is Jared Leto in House of Gucci, which ironically would be good in this upcoming Mario film. But Chris Pratt is doing the Mario voice. Wait, he's not Italian. He's not. Oh, that seems like wrong. It does. People are not happy. Or, about yeah, I'm it. sure they're not. That's fucked up. Anyway, Sabato de Sarno. Uh, he is currently the fashion director of Ready to Wear at Valentino. Before that, he worked at Prada, Dolce & Gabbana. So we don't know what his aesthetic is. No, I mean, you can glean from the fact that he's worked at Valentino and what we've heard, what Gucci wants to do or the idea of where Gucci wants to go, which is going from less fashion-driven stuff to becoming more of a timeless luxury brand like an Hermes but also when you consider the fact that Alessandro Michele worked under Frida Giannini for years at Gucci and his shit didn't look anything like that that's so, very true again I just don't there's nothing to really say because I have no idea what this man's vibe actually is I do not know this man I do not know him but we will know him soon I think that the era of design houses moving quote unquote name designer around designers around the various luxury brands like chess pieces is over. And I do enjoy that they're wanting to cultivate a new generation of designers. Yeah, but that's happening more than ever now, though, with like the Daniel Lee situation and like Alessandro is going to go somewhere else. Obviously, like I like to think that it's headed in that direction. But Ricardo Tisci. Still without a, a luxury house. He'll find one. He'll find his way. Shall we talk about the Tiffany & Co. Nike collab? I wouldn't wear it, but obviously this... It's not for me. Yeah, it's not for us. <laughs> like, I don't even have a pair of Nikes just like as is. Yeah. Know? I don't even have sneakers. Like... I don't know what an Air Force 1, 2, or 3 is. <laughs> Although, I will say, that shoehorn is pretty cunt. Like, imagine like... Yeah. Just whipping that out. The shoehorn. So the accessories attached to the shoe. I thought the laces in the Tiffany blue were pretty great. It's like, all right, if you're going to go there, you should go there. I mean, the toothbrush also. Like, if you brushed your teeth with that. Yeah, the the accessories, like the shoehorn, the laces make sense. But then that platinum toothbrush is like, huh. Yeah. But actually, I think the ads for it are really beautiful. It's very like Irving Penn Clinique energy um but i think it's interesting because for the past couple of years tiffany has had a cool creative director this chick named ruba abu nima and she's been trying to make tiffany appeal to younger audiences hence the not your mother's tiffany campaign hence the jay-z and the beyonce of it all yeah but i noticed that it was announced yesterday on women's wear daily that she's stepping down and no longer working there i guess right after this Nike collab came out, so I wonder what direction they're going to go in now. Because I felt like they were finally starting to get a little cooler in that sense. Like, And they have been doing a lot of collabs. Like, they did one with Fendi also. I don't know. It's owned by LVMH. The youngest Arnaud boy heads up the brand. It makes sense that they're going for a younger audience. I just don't know if it's landing. The sales are doing well, but I think it's because they've inflated their price point slightly. But also, a brand can't survive on collabs. I think it's a no, great... No, of course not. It's a great strategy. It's just a marketing strategy to, like... So people remember that Tiffany exists. And Tiffany is cool now. Yeah. Shall we get into the Cuts Viral, much-talked-about article this week? Uh, is it much-talked-about, or is it for, like, a certain segment of chronically online fashion people? Well, they talked about it a lot. Yes, they did. Certainly. So The Cut published this piece, which was written by Tahara Hairston. It details sort of every conceivable crack in the facade of the brand Pierre Moss and its designer Kirby Jean Ramond and chronicles everything from his lavish spending to mistreatment of his staff and so much more. This is the longest article I've ever read and I don't even know where to start and actually I read it twice because I read it when it first came out and then I read it again because I knew we would talk about it and then I got deep into like the comment 
threads, like Twitter, like all that shit. So this is all I've done all week is read this article. I don't know if there's a there there because a big narrative thread in the article is how the industry is disappointed that the label isn't making money. But then the author of this article loves bringing up the fact that Pierre Moss isn't very good design wise. So are they trying to say that being a bad designer is fine as long as you make people money? Right. Or as long as you like sell actual clothes and stuff. I'm of two minds about this because on one hand, he does sound like a terrible boss that made some questionable decisions. But on the other hand, things like scrapping entire collections and like pain factories late is extremely normal. You know, that's not like a Pierre Moss specific problem. Like if you run a small fashion brand in New York, particularly a small, cool fashion brand, you are Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. You are like... (laughs) I'm taking the money from my Lispex collab so I can pay the factory so we can fulfill our essence order so we can use that money to like pay the venue for our show. Like that's just how it is. Yeah. Creating a brand is a very expensive venture. You should always pay your vendors on time. But in any creative industry, a lot of people don't. Even well-funded companies take forever to pay. Yeah. Also, as someone who worked for an eccentric celebrity, the gaslighting and the denial of objective facts, like it's supposed to rain on the day of the fashion show, rang very true for me. Totally. But I think this sort of chaos and the sort of semi-toxic vibes of the sort of work environment that he created for his employees is kind of typical of any startup. Yeah, and any creative industry. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm not saying that I don't think things like the fact that certain employees couldn't look him in the eyes is fucked up. Like, of course, I do (laughs) think that's fucked up. But also it just, again, having worked at startups, it's pretty normal. Yeah, and having worked myself in creative industries, whether it was fashion or the entertainment industry, unfortunately, this behavior is very normal. I also hate to be considered the source girl, but a vast majority of the people quoted (laughs) in this article and the people who chose to go on record were former employees who, according to the article, were unceremoniously let go with no severance. Right. And another thread of this article seems to be that Keurig gave him a lot of money and invested in his brand. And yes, and he won this millions, essentially. Right. And he won the CFDA prize, which was like 400K. So for a small brand, they got a huge injection of cash that was mishandled. I mean, you shouldn't spend a million dollars on a fashion show, which is what he did with the couture collection that everyone ended up hating. Anyway, but I don't think flying his team to Joshua Tree so they could do ayahuasca is like a misuse of funds. Like Silicon Valley guys do that shit all the time. The author has chosen to take the least charitable lens on every story because it's like, yeah, you could look at it as him wasting Keurig's money to go to Joshua Tree. But then his explanation is like, look, every company goes on an annual team team building trip. We went to Joshua Tree. We usually go to Europe to get inspired But it was COVID, so we couldn't leave the country. And you're like, well, that makes sense. But also, a representative for Keurig is quoted. And he was like, no, the money wasn't misused. Anna Winters quoted. She goes, I think he's a genius. It's like, yeah, they're never going to admit. Even if they think he's a fuck up, they're not going to go on the record. Least of all to the the, cut. But the cut is, and it's kind of shocking that an article like this came from the cut. Not that they don't have excellent journalism. They are, of course the home of our Lord and Savior, Kathy Horn. Yes. I think of the cut as a media entity that has been very kind towards him for his entire career. I noticed that they didn't cover the Couture show last year, which I thought was interesting and also quite tragic because I would have loved to uh, hear Kathy Horn's thoughts on it. I don't think that the author has a personal vendetta against this man, but I do think that he must have burned so many bridges in the fashion industry. And the New York fashion industry is not that big. So I think if enough people have sort of like similar stories, like they thought it was worth reporting on. And clearly it was. Yeah. And the author said on her Instagram, she spent three months doing research on this story. And it more 
we're just in a nature of clickbait and kind of taking out the most salacious things, which as we've tried to put into context as people that have worked in creative industries, this is kind of regular behavior, not saying it's the right behavior, but this shit happens a lot. But it feels like the tone of the article is a bit like Tyra Banks in that viral clip from um, America's Next Top Model, where it was like, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. Well, I think the industry was and is rooting for him because he did make a big statement with his fashion shows. And perhaps he is the best at making fashion shows and not great at the selling clothes and on the craft side of things. Which are pretty big. (laughs) Of course they're big things. And I definitely think it's worth mentioning. Look, I've made no secret, like not a Pierre Moss fan. My thoughts on it have always been that when you take some of the clothes out of the context of the fashion show, like let's say a gown, for example, you could look at that gown. That gown could be Brandon Maxwell. It could be Probble. It could be Tibby. Like it could, it's sort of like, I think a lot of the clothes were kind of generic in a New York fashion week kind of way. I don't think that the subversiveness of the fashion shows ever really translated into the clothes themselves. And even like the stuff that was more like streetwear adjacent, the graphic stuff, there's just so many good streetwear brands right now. And it just didn't seem that exciting within that landscape, especially of the brands in New York. And I do think it's unfair in the article. I mean, this is not exactly how it's phrased, but it's basically like, well, why couldn't why can't you be more like Telfar? It's like because Telfar is a totally different business ethos. They brought up Telfar because of the fact that he was his business like wasn't doing so great in this article they said he was making a hundred thousand dollars a year in profit and now he's making over a million because of the success of this single bag that has blown up obviously and i think that's interesting because i remember like when i worked at vfels years ago we sold those bags i think we were one of the only people that sold those bags and of course people bought them but they weren't like flying off the shelf right and the truth of the matter is, is that you can be the most brilliant designer, but it doesn't always necessarily translate into strong sales, at least not immediately. And like he could have very easily given up and been like, OK, I'm not making enough money. I'm going to go get a job at Balenciaga or something right. like a lot of people would do that. And sometimes it's just like the fashion industry is so fickle in that way. Well, for Telfar, it really was the product meeting the moment. Yeah, exactly. The timing is like, that's why it's like so many people are just too ahead of their time. The, uh, the mass audience doesn't even know that they want it yet. The other thread of this article or issue is that he wanted to handle all of the business things, right? So he never had the Robert Duffy to his Marc Jacobs, the Domenico de Sole to Tom Ford. And the article makes it seem that is what he wanted. And this is also, by the way, an issue that plagues Silicon Valley. Same with Jack Dorsey. They all want to handle the business stuff and the vision. And you kind of can't do both, especially if you are a visionary. A lot of fashion designers are crazy. Like they're actually like crazy hanging on by a thread crazy. And... It is too much for them to deal with the business side. Like not everyone can be a Michael Kors or a Tom Ford who like somehow have their shit together. Or at least it seems that they do. Uh, but there's just something about like the temperament of a of certain fashion designers that just does not lend itself to good business decisions. No, and a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff in this article reminded me of the early years of John Galliano before he got the Dior position where you know it really was mo- the top models of the day just loved him he was he is a creative genius doing these amazing shows and he needed that business element but in the 90s you used to have this backbone and I guess we were talking about this a little bit with Gucci where these brilliant designers were getting picked up by big fashion houses and then were supported in that way well and that's what saves them because it is very hard to sustain a small business and I think this is something that is wrong with fashion media in general and Beth Ann Hardison's quote in this article speaks to that which is that it's like the fashion media loves to build up 
the next new thing. Yeah. They love to talk about people's first, second collections. They want to support people that are seen as like disruptive visionaries on the come up. And they also want to support heritage luxury brands, Gucci, Chanel, what have you. That middle space is where it is really hard. The fashion middle class. Yeah. That and that is exactly where he is because he was getting so much media attention I think he probably thought that sort of like the brand could sustain, he could continue to get sort of yeah. investment money on this sort of like hype alone and on this sort of idea of the brand and the idea that if enough people know about the brand, then they'll want to buy into the brand and it will be commercially successful at some point. This article points out they didn't really make that many clothes ever. Like very few things were actually produced and sold. And of course, that's normal to a degree. And he points that out in the article. Like it's very normal for like half the shit in a fashion show to not be produced. Of course. Like that's just a standard thing. But most brands have a hero product, which is usually a handbag, a shoe or fragrances, that sort of thing. And Pierre Moss had nothing like that to sort of support the entire business. And he didn't have a benefactor. I find it interesting when this recent discussion of the rise of the row, I feel like it's not spoken about enough. The fact that because of their background as child stars and the video and merch empire that I think, you know, when they were 18 was worth a half a billion dollars, they got to fund the row through those lean years, through those years in you know the mid 2010s when they were still figuring shit out to get to this place now yeah it's really hard to have a brand if you're not rich it is or else again you have to do all that uncut gems type shit all right. the time you know you have to do weird advertorial videos for american express that run on vogue.com and shit to like make it work it is not just about I sell clothes, I get money. It's that, but it's also, I consult for other brands. Yeah. I do customs for celebrities. You know, I do collabs with mass market retailers. Like, it, there's so much. I do spawn con. Like, there's so much that that you have to do to sort of stay afloat if you don't just have a shitload of money or, again, a hero product that everyone is just buying. And there are plenty of designers that, who, well, one, did all that shit, and their brand still failed. I think of Zach Posen. And there are people who are iconic personalities who shuttered their brand because they were like, fuck this. Isaac Mizrahi, Todd Oldham. It's, a, like, insane to me that anyone even starts a brand. Right. Like, I understand why people start, like, a jewelry brand or, some, <laughs> or a handbags or something where you don't have to do a whole-ass size run, but, like, ready-to-wear, like... It's crazy. That's crazy. You have to just be so passionate. I know. And you have to be so talented and so driven. I know. What I'm thinking about is so bitchy, and I'm not sure if I should say it. What? I think about a brand like Rosetta Getty, who is married to Balthazar Getty, and he famously cheated on her with Sienna Miller, and they were on a boat, and everyone was like, how could you take him back? And it's like, how do you think Rosetta Getty's funded? <laughs> okay, that is really mean. <laughs> There are so many brands like that. To wrap things up, there is no more brand, right? Is there a Pierre Moss still? I'm sure there's still a brand. I don't know. It's on hiatus or something. Way to kick someone while they're down. I know. And you know what? Like, I do have empathy for him. Because as sort of any sort of creative person that puts whatever they do out in the world, whether it's him with Pierre Moss, us having this podcast, this is the worst nightmare. This is what your worst nightmare is, is this kind of peace coming out about you. Yeah. This would send me to like therapy for like years. Yeah. It's essentially like every two star or one star review we've, we've gotten is the source of an article. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Anonymous source at sex in the city fan 420. <laughs> Why are they so mean? They don't like anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the biggest takeaway here is that branding isn't enough. 
you actually do have to consider craft. Yeah. That's important, especially with any sort of luxury product. People have to feel that a blazer is worth $1,200 or you can't sell anything. That's true. And if you're going to fly everyone out to do an ayahuasca trip in Joshua Tree, you make everyone sign an NDA. (laughs) You know what? Remember when we were talking about the, I think the JW show, and I was like, this is what would happen if you took ayahuasca and saw a fashion show. But that's actually what that Pierre Moss Couture show was. That's true. Like, that's literally what that was. And it already happened. Interesting. All right, shall we talk about Couture, baby? Let's do it. You want to start with Aliyah? Yes, AK, the only thing I care about right now, Peter Mulier is a genius, and I'm obsessed. Yes, he's invited a small crowd to his apartment in Antwerp. The apartment he shares with current Bottega designer Mathieu Blasey, which has there ever been a fashion couple like this? Yeah, Tom Brown and Andrew Bolton, I would say, are the closest. I mean, they're not both fashion designers, but in terms of sort of like prestige jobs in the fashion industry, it's comparable. And I honestly hope that the four of them all go out on double dates together. But having a very intimate fashion show is very in line with Aliyah himself, the man himself, who hated big fashion presentations and the fashion week schedule in general, because this show was in the middle of couture, but it's a fall winter ready to wear show. But... The choice to have the show in his apartment was because his therapist told him to do so is what he told a reviewer. I'm sorry. If I had this fabulous, brutalist, concrete paradise, I would have fashion shows in there too. Also, like, his books. Okay. I was like, we got to talk about the book organization. (laughs) Okay. Usually, I hate this. One of my biggest pet peeves is when coffee table books are stacked on each other and it's so high that, like, I know you don't read those books. Like, if you ever needed to get the book at the bottom of the pile, like, you're never reading that book again. It's yeah. not happening. Um, but this, I guess they were kind of shorter stacks on these beautiful shelves. It was just utterly gorgeous. And it's so fun to see, like, what books he has. And they're mostly fashion books. So it's like, oh, I know what you guys are looking at. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, they do kind of have everything. It's Chanel, Dior, anything, everything. Do you think they had the book stylist come in and (laughs) curate their books? Yeah, I don't think either of them have time to just like sit around and like fiddle with their books like I do. I think the interesting thing about Alaya is he doesn't just have known pieces. There's a whole host of silhouettes that are associated with his design ethos. So it's interesting to see how it's dealt with in a, well, in a context of a different designer. He's interpreting the legacy of Alaya and the archive in the exact right way. And these do feel like clothes that actual people could wear, which I think is really fabulous. I think these are actually clothes that are worth investing in. I didn't realize that he was Belgian, which is a place that has serious design cred, most notably (laughs) the Antwerp Six. Yes. So I feel like... And Margiela. And Margiela. And I... (laughs) Antwerp Six plus Margiela. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like he's the Antwerp like 6.5 or something. Yeah. Um, he's leaning out Elias couture precision tailoring. Also, I do think that Belgians might be slightly superior people. They really are great designers. Certainly the architecture. Also, speaking of Belgians, I said that Chantal Ackerman was French because I think of her as Parisian because she did live there. But yes, she is Belgian. I do know that. And I am sorry to the Belgians. Love y'all. Yeah, I think the most (laughs) shocking thing is we have Belgian listeners. Yeah, love our Belgian listeners. Well, next I'd like to talk about Hater Ackerman for Gautier. I think it's good. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I like the second half more than the first half, but I think it's cool. I'm into it, I guess. Wow, I have the most like neutral take on this. No, I do respect the fact that he really put his own spit on Gautier. It doesn't feel like he's curating the archives in the way that like the Olivier Roustein one and other ones have sort of like felt like that. He did his own thing. And I think that's because he said before the collection debuted, he's like, I don't have a sense of humor. Like... (laughs) Like Gautier does. So I'm just going to focus on You're the right. Tailoring. That's what was missing. Yeah. That's what was missing. 
interesting. And, and that's what I think. I think Glenn Martin's collection had the best balance of tailoring and sense of humor. And yeah, that's my favorite one to this day. Yeah. But I really hope we see some of these gowns at the Oscars. Also, oh my God, we didn't even talk about the finale looks at the Elias show. That shit. Oh my God. Like oh, again, yeah. if we could get Margot Robbie in one of those at the Oscars, you know, she would slay. The problem is nev- no one would dress that austere on the red carpet, unfortunately. Well, yes, someone should, and it would be like Uma Thurman. Ooh, and then she would be put on the worst dressed list. Yeah, even though she's always the best dressed. Speaking of fashion designers that like no longer make clothes, I didn't notice that he stopped having fashion shows. I didn't know that he lost control of his brand and his name. Peter Ackerman? Yes, it's because he's still doing customs for Timotei and Tilda Swinton and shit. So we see that and we think, oh, oh there's like a brand. He got John Galliano'd? Yeah, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know what happened, really. I haven't done, like, any research into this. I just learned this from reading, um, I think, Vanessa Friedman's um, New York Times review. Crazy. But, yeah, I mean, see, it's all about appearances. But going back to the Tiffany conversation of being so collab-based, I think this is a genius take, and I hope they continue doing this. It creates a, a real anticipation and excitement. But that's only because... The collections have been so exquisite. The one last season was not exquisite. Exquisite is not a word I would use to describe that. I'm conflicted about the whole Gautier thing because on one hand, it is exciting because we basically get to see all of these contemporary designers do Gautier fanfic, essentially. Right. And there is something satisfying about that. Although the other part of me is like, just get like the most fab designer to make this just like the most relevant house again it is crazy that he stepped down at a time where his aesthetics that he had been doing for 40 years became so prominent yeah even his pieces but just sort of like the the mesh stuff stuff. yeah to not have the in-house consistent designer at this time is funny but i like this choice um Mugler, let's do it. I do think that it's impossible to imagine these clothes on anyone other than pop stars, models, and Kardashians. But it's always fun to watch this shit. You know, it's a fun show. The casting is always so good. Although sometimes I feel like maybe we talk about Mugler more than we should just because it's like stunty. You know what I mean? Like we're not talking about like Dries Van Noten all the time. Well, Dries got to step it the fuck up. No, Dries doesn't care about that shit. Dries' whole thing is like, you know what? I just want to make a nice dress. And like people, he's not like screaming out into the void like the Kirby Jean Raymonds of the world and the Demnas of the world and stuff. That's true. I mean, what I like is with these shows, they were essentially filming the fashion film that we usually see while the the runway show was happening. Yeah. Which I feel like is a nice evolution of what Mugler did with his shows. He was the person that really pushed fashion shows into becoming the spectacles as we know them today. Absolutely. It's always fun to see who are in the shows. Like, love seeing Amber and Shalom. Love seeing Ava Herzegova close the show. And she, of course, to me, is kind of like embodies the original Mugler woman, which is basically like a terrifying icy blonde dominatrix. Which I should say, when I was in New York, I saw the Mugler exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. Oh, that's cool. Exquisite. Can we get into the fact that Paloma was in this show? Yeah. Love her. We stand. But I am very instantly suspicious of brands when there's only one plus size model and it's Paloma. Because the reality of the situation is while they did make a custom in a size 14 or a size 16 or whatever for this show, they only go up to to a U.S. size 12. Right. This is in no way a size inclusive brand. This is the whole Mew Mew micro mini skirt. Like if you're a fashion brand and you dress one plus size woman and it's Paloma, like that's what I call a Paloma only brand. Right. It's shocking how many of them there actually are. Well, but also any creative industry, again, entertainment industry, fashion industry, they take the wrong lesson from diversity, right? They're like, ooh, okay, well, we got the one, so we're good now. Well, also, it's like, say what you will about Dolce & Gabbana, but it's like, they go up to a 2XL. 
You know what I mean? Like there's a reason why Jennifer Coolidge on the White Lotus on the red carpet is wearing that shit because she can actually buy clothes there. And they will make her stuff. And in her of size. course, yeah, of course they're making her custom stuff. But you wouldn't know that because they don't cast plus size models in their shows. <laughs> like it's like the irony of all of it yeah. is just it, I find myself being increasingly preoccupied with. Speaking of things I'm preoccupied with, Valentino. It's giving major Camp Met Gala vibes, that I will say. <laughs> I know. All I can think about is that the Vogue videos that they are, I guess, required to do during the Met, but the one with Frances McDormand and she's dancing in Valentino. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, truly. It's that like spun out into an entire collection. And I do think that some of the styling was a bit whack, but ultimately there were enough just like, you know, great gowns, beautiful gowns throughout this show that that I loved, particularly the more opulent taffeta ones that felt very like 80s Ungaro Nolan Miller vibes. Yeah, I was going to say between Alaya and Mugler and now Valentino, it's interesting how each of these designers have honored the OG designer and their different design ethos because it felt like the stripes the giant bows the polka dots felt very in line with valentino's work especially like the late 80s early 90s stuff totally but i brought up rudy gernreich when we were talking about that saint laurent menswear show but also his influences all over this like they basically like took his swimsuits and turned them into like gowns and shit which right. is cool I, but i think there are a lot of varied references in this collection and I think Pierre Paolo's genius comes in playing with proportions and his sense of color, which is this insane combination of like desaturated jewel tones, which I know is not really a thing, but like that's how I think of the colors that he that he puts on the runway. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of color happening here. It's the opposite of the Mugler show where there it's like they have like one red dress. <laughs> yeah. If I have to say who this Valentino girl is, it's just a pastel-colored, thoughty eccentric. I honestly don't really know who the Valentino girl is because the only thing that they make that makes sense to me is, like, ball gowns. Right. The actual clothes, like, the accessories, I'm like, oh, I don't get this at all. But, you know, some brands just shouldn't make normal clothes. And speaking of Victor and Rolf... <laughs> Okay, I was wondering if Victor and Rolf was still making actual clothes because just curious, checking in with our boys. Yeah. And and not just doing a couture collection. Once babes, a year. like they have some really dark ready to wear. Like there's a hoodie that has a peplum. It's like someone put a gun to their head and was like, you know, athleisure is a thing right now, you guys. Like, we gotta gotta pull through. But unfortunately, I do feel like there is a woman going to Tracy Anderson on the Upper East Side wearing that. I don't know who is wearing this. I don't know. It, it, talk about a hero product. Victor and Rolf, like, hit the fucking jackpot with their fragrances, actually. Flower bomb, spice bomb, what ha all the bombs... Emrata is the new face of Flower Bomb, by the way. I don't oh. know if you've seen that. I'm sure they're still raking in a lot of money from that. And I'm sure they're couture collections as well, but they should basically only make fragrances in couture, nothing else. Fair enough. Also, they don't have to. If you don't have to do a ready-to-wear line, don't. Yeah, well, they also have bridal. I, yeah, I could see that. But it's kind of dark. I hate to tell you, a lot of bridal is dark. It's true. That's what people want. Like, they want to look disgusting. I will say, we have talked about this a lot, and we didn't get into it with the Valentino collection. 89 looks in the Valentino collection. Only 18 in the Victor and Rolf show. I mean, that's considerate of them. I feel like editors waited longer for the show to start than the length of the show. They might be even bigger stunt queens than Kirby Jean Raymond, actually. Because, like, this show, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, they were wearing gowns, but not in the way <laughs> you normally wear one. I don't know how to even say it. Yeah, they were very Christopher Nolan-y. If Inception was a couture <laughs> show, that's what it would be. Because the gown started to tilt like it was a ticking clock until it was fully... One of the gowns was fully inverted 
and the model was walking with a tulle skirt fully in front of their face, which she had an earpiece in, and they were telling her backstage how to walk. They were certainly amazing, like, in a technical sense. I would gag if someone was crazy enough to wear one of these to the Oscars. I think it would be sensational. Because this is the sort of thing that, of course, like, anyone on the fashion side of the internet has seen this shit 10,000 times. But I think the general public would be truly shocked by this. I think if you were to wear it on the red carpet, I think not the one, not the one that's fully inverted, but the, <laughs> the look just before it where it's it's completely horizontal. So that like, yeah, <laughs> you're just fucking with the two seats next to you during the Oscars there. They are also covered by a tool skirt. Yeah, I am sure these gowns were like insanely heavy. I can't even imagine. And they have had they have faced some criticism in the past for being a little sort of like what some people feel is misogynist for just the sort of burdensome things that they force these models to wear. Like they did this one show where every model was like, had a lighting rig on them, like a fashion show for one person. So they had these like steel poles that went up their spines. Like you had the sense that if the model fell, they might actually like die. Pierce themselves. Yeah. Or break their spine or something. We didn't talk about your your love uh, fell on the red carpet of Valentino. Oh, Kristen McMenemy. Yeah. Poor girl. I mean, but this is what happens when you have like carpeted floors. Like six inch heels and carpeting do not mix. Yeah, because it's not for her naivete. She is a legend. But yeah. I love how pissed she looked. Oh, yeah. When she fell, she looked so pissed because, like, half the time they laugh. Like, you think of the famous photo of Naomi Campbell in the Vivian Westwood shoes, iconic. This is, like, the opposite of that. Yeah, there's also that famous, I mean, maybe it's not famous, famous to me, the Tom Ford Gucci, I think it's Fall Winter 2001, where he did he had these rugs and every model just like completely went down to their knees. That's that's misogyny. Well, Balenciaga also does this with their couture shows, which are held in that carpeted salon, basically. Yeah. And the models and the celebrities walking in the shows look completely insane trying to walk in there. In like whatever their giant puffy pointy Balenciaga shoes are. Should this be our cause? We're like, (laughs) take carpeting out of fashion shows. It's cruel. Yeah. And misogynistic. Normalize everyone being in Pat McGrath glitter face. Not just one model. There wasn't one face in the Valentino (laughs) show. I was, I was, and 89 looks. I was proud of their restraint. Not one. (laughs) Oh, God, it's the end of the show, and we still haven't figured out what to do. Fuck me. I know. I mean, we could try out one of these survivalist meals. Should we taste test the <laughs> beef stroking off with noodles? Um, <laughs> Why is this so funny to me? I'm, it's probably not funny to anyone else. I think it's funny to a few people. Do you have any ideas of how we should end the show? Yeah, but I, I want to tell them to you off air so we can reject any potentially embarrassing ideas that I have privately. Well, on that note, we're going to bid you adieu so we can talk about these potential end bits and I can reject the embarrassing ones. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We love you, especially the Belgians. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.